This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here today, and especially all the ladies who I heard had a really good retreat. Uh, really good to see you here today as well. So let's go to God in prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, really pray that you help us to get into Isaiah chapter 34 and 35. It's a difficult passage. Uh, there's much to understand. Uh, we really pray that uh, you help me and uh, help us through the Holy Spirit to really get to the depths of it and to feel uh, what it's saying and to respond correctly. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I was told that when I was a toddler, I was very young, I think less than two years old, I was asleep in my cot when my house was broken into. Uh, my parents were tied up uh, at knife point and robbed of their belongings. And the robbers were never caught. Now it was a very traumatic experience for my parents. They were very shaken and scared. And I knew that because uh, as I was growing up, uh, my house was one of the only houses with bars on every window. And uh, there was an alarm system, and we were never allowed to leave the door open for more than one second after we came in, right? So, you know, when uh, you've been a victim of violence, uh, you feel traumatized, you feel shaken, you feel scared. So last Thursday, in our Bible study group, someone was sharing with us about how uh, at the Singapore hospitals, the, they see victims of people who've been knocked down by these uh, PMDs. You know, PMDs, the personal mobility devices, right? And sometimes these PMDs, they knock down people and, you know, they're lying on the ground, they maybe broke something or they're bruised. And the PMDs turn around, they see that they are knocked down, then they run away, right? And so these poor people who are lying on the floor, they go to hospital and they don't just feel uh, scared and traumatized, but they feel angry, right? They feel angry because they feel that this person knocked me down and there's no justice because... The person ran off. So not only do they feel scared and shaken and traumatized, but they feel a great and deep sense of injustice, a great sense of uh, being frustrated that, you know, I can't catch this person who knocked me down. So I think that as we come to today's passage, it forms part of the greater section of Isaiah that we've been looking at since chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we see that God... Uh, God's people in Judah have been, uh, I guess, threatened by all the neighbors around her. And so in chapter 13, all the way up to today, in chapter 34 and 35, we see that God uh, looks at each of these nations around her and says that he will judge her for the, judge them for, I guess, the threats that they make against God's people. So in the north, we already see the Phoenicians and then the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites on the on this side, which is the east, okay, and then the west, the Philistines, and even the north, uh, the people, their brother in Israel. And further afield, there were threats also from the nations of the Babylons. Okay, Babylon is further away. And then the big nation, which is Assyria. And the fear that they had was not of trade sanctions, okay, there wasn't like some sort of cold war or trade war, but there was real violence. Real warfare, real physical uh, sword and blood uh, in view here. So I remember my my young um, nephew in Australia. Uh, well, this story was once told to me. He was uh, on a lift, or not a lift, in a travelator in Australia, 
and he was still a young boy with my sister, and he was carrying his uh, lightsaber, okay, his lightsaber, and apparently in the travelator there was uh, an old lady who uh, glared at him with his uh, lightsaber. So my nephew looked up at the lady and said, I will annihilate you and destroy you and kill you mercilessly with my sword and grind you into little pieces until there's nothing left of you. Okay, so you can see my, uh, my nephew watches a lot of television and it's quite warlike in his thinking. Uh, my sister was quite embarrassed. But, but what my nephew was saying, uh, the nations around God's people in Judah really believed. They really wanted to annihilate and destroy and grind up Judah into little pieces. And so you can understand why God's people in Judah would feel fear, but not just fear, but they would also feel a sense of injustice because you know these countries have been coming back and forth and seeking to destroy God's people, but it seemed as if God was doing nothing. right? So there was violence coming, there was violence that was affecting them, but somehow God didn't seem to be there. God wasn't really protecting them. And that's where we come to chapter 34, verse 1 to 2. That is the big background or the context which we find ourselves in chapter 34. So in chapter 34, verse 1, it says, Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. And all the stars and the sky will be dissolved. And the heavens will be rolled up in the scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine. Like shriveled figs from the fig tree. So here we have a series of images. And uh, I want you to really look at your Bible today because these images are very important. I'm not going to be flashing up too many of the Bible texts because I realize that you, if not, you just sit there and watch the, the screen like a movie or something. But I really want you to look at God's Word. Right? So the image is, first of all, God calling the nations. He's like calling the nations, come, 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 listen and pay attention here what I'm going to say. And God tells them, the nations, that, they, that they've incurred his wrath, right? He's really angry with them. He's really angry. But why? Why is he so angry? Well, if you look carefully, it seems as if they have incurred his wrath and his anger because in verse 2 it says, of their armies, right? Their armies. Now, I want you to pay close attention here because you might disagree with me. But it seems as if God, at the very beginning, seems to be angry with the violence of the armies. Right? It's a bit like my nephew with his uh, lightsaber. Want, you know, He's angry with their attitude of wanting to kill and to annihilate and to destroy. Now, I think that this, at the very beginning, forms the, the picture of God's anger. Right? The, the general picture of God's anger. Because God is angry with the nations, and particularly the violence of the nations which come through their armies. So you think about uh, the first sin in the Bible, okay? After Cain and Abel, after Adam and Eve was Cain and Abel, right? Which was violence and killing and murder. And here we see that really the nations and their armies are caught up with this sin of violence. 
Now, I think we don't think much about it, but the, the world itself is a very violent place. Right? So I was reading this book by Karen Armstrong uh, a while ago about uh, fields of blood, where you know, it looks, looks at the history of religion, the history of warfare and violence. And I remember the introduction where uh, they said that, uh, she said that actually in the earliest archaeological cities, right, so the oldest cities, they find walls. And these walls are not meant to keep out animals, right? These walls are meant to keep out other human beings. And what she says is actually the greatest danger to human beings right from the very beginning has never been animals, but other human beings, right? Right, we are the ones who cause the greatest violence to ourselves. So you think about the last century. Right? You think about the number of people who died in the wars like World War One, World War Two, uh, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, the war in Afghanistan, the war even today in Syria. So I think what's happening here is God is saying to the nations, "Come, right, come, come and listen, because I'm angry with all this violence." All this wickedness and uh, killing and wanton destruction. So God gives this image, if you look very carefully, in verse 3, where what they do to other people, these armies, he will do back to them, right? So just as Judah has, has seen blood-soaked mountains, right? Can you imagine the amount of death to soak up a mountain? So God will give them back what they have done to the other nations. He, them, he will kill their armies and he will soak the mountains with their blood. But verse 4 seems to say that this judgment which comes on their armies is a final judgment. Because when this happens in verse 4, all the stars in the sky will be dissolved and all the heavens will be rolled up in a scroll. It seems as if it would be an end of time, a climatic judgment, which will coincide with this destruction of the nations and their armies. Now I want you to think for a second, okay? We are reading Isaiah chapter 34. So who is God speaking to? Who is the prophet Isaiah speaking to? He's not speaking to the nations, right? I mean, the people of Assyria, the people of Babylon, they're not going to be reading uh, Isaiah 34, it's going to be the people of, of Judah who are reading the prophet Isaiah's words. So why is he, in a sense, letting them eavesdrop on what he's going to say to the nations? Why is he giving them a vision of what is going to happen in the future to the armies of the world? I think the reason is because he's trying to assure God's people who are scared and angry that he will bring judgment on all the people who bring violence on them. Right? Can you see what's happening here? They are being inflicted violence by all these foreign countries. And they hear that God one day will judge all these countries based on the violence that they have shown to them. And that's meant to give them encouragement to trust in God. Because God is the destroyer. God is the one who will bring vengeance on the countries. So recently I've been walking my dog in uh, Bukit Batok Nature Park, which is a, which I realize is kind of eerie and sometimes a bit lonely. But it's okay, I have my attack dog with me. So I feel safe. But I remember walking there and I vaguely remember how there was actually a woman who was raped and killed here in 2000, right? And the killer was never caught. 
And as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, even though the Singapore courts and the Singapore police have never caught this person, and this person got away scot-free, but yet, God will judge this person for their violence, right? God will judge this person for the wickedness uh, for what they've done. And that last day when the heavens are rolled up and the scar, when the stars are taken away, when he's judging all the nations and their armies for violence, the person, that person who raped and killed that person in 2000, uh, God will judge that person that day as well. And that gives me encouragement, right? That gives me hope as a Christian to keep trusting God because I know that God is a God who will give vengeance and, and retribution to those who do violence on others. So in verse 5 to verse 8, um, we see that God uh, gives, actually from verse 5 onwards, God gives a series of images which develop this idea of his judgment on the violent armies and nations of the world. But here in verse 5, he particularizes it. He says, My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. The people I've totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now, if you look at this map, Edom was the direct neighbor of Judah. Can you see that? Okay, so the next slide. So Bozra was like the capital of Edom. So in a sense, there was a rivalry between Bozra and Jerusalem. Right? You, you know, it's a bit like we talk like Beijing and Washington. Right? You know, they, the capitals characterize the nations. Okay, so Beijing characterizes China. Washington characterizes the US. If you don't know where Beijing and Washington are, you have to Google it, okay? So what it's actually saying here is that God, in verse 1 to 4, speaks about his judgment of the nations and the armies. But now he particularizes it in Edom and Bozra and says, okay, this is what it's going to look like. Right? This is what uh, the enemies of God look like, and this is what judgment on them is going to look like. And Edom is a perfect example of the sort of uh, annihilating, destroying, killing armies and nations that God has in mind. Uh, because in, in Edom's history, uh, okay, there are many, many passages, there are three long passages here. Uh, Edom has always been an enemy to God's people. Right? Even before they, God's people went into the promised land, the Edomites were already opposed to them. Right? The Edomites were asked by their brother Israel to cross into the promised land, but they refused to let them go into the promised land. So in verse 14 it says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom saying, this is what your brother Israel, because uh, um, they, the, they were from the Esau side, right? Says, you know about all the hardship that has come upon us. Our forefathers went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our fathers, but when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here in Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. 
Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. But Edom answered, You may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, We will go along the main road, and if we of our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again they answered, You may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. And since Edom refused to let them through their territory, Israel turned away from them. So, right from the very beginning, Edom refused to let God's people pass through to go to the promised land. But things get worse, right? Because in the history of Judah and Edom, the Edomites actually attack God's people. And they not only do they attack people equally, but when Judah are defenseless and they've you know, lost their army, then they come and attack and they, root, they, they loot and they pillage and they kill. Right? So in chapter 35 of Ezekiel it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Okay, Mount Seir was uh, this mountain in Edom. Prophesy against it and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your towns into ruins and you will be desolate. And you will know that I am the Lord. Because you harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword, at the time of the calamity, the time of their punishment reached its climax. Therefore, surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will give you over to the bloodshed and it will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste and cut off from it all who come and go. I will fill your mountains with the slain. Those killed by the sword will fall on your hills and in your valleys and all your ravines. I will make you desolate forever. Your towns will not be inhabited and you will know that I am the Lord. Okay, now, this is actually what happens. Okay, so uh, when God's people were attacked, Edom took advantage and said, okay, now the neighbor is weak, right? The army is defeated. We will go and we will kill even more and we'll get what we want. So in Obadiah chapter 1, uh, it actually records what happens, right? The vision of Obadiah, this is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of the, their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So you can see from these three passages that Edom was like the perfect representation of a nation which wanted to kill and to annihilate and to use his armies to reap benefit even when their enemy was down, right? So Israel was down, Judah was down, they, they kept wanting to go in and, and loot the nation. So here in Isaiah chapter 34, 
God gives three images of what he's going to do in judgment to the Edomites and to Bozra. So the first image is of the image of sacrifice. Okay, that's what it says there in verse 6 and 7. Right? Now when we read Isaiah chapter 34 verse 6 to 7, we kind of like don't really understand what's happening. Because thank God we don't uh, sacrifice animals right, anymore because it will be very bloody and smelly. But that's what the picture is, right? It's of a sword and it kills the animals and the fats of the animals and the blood of the animals all come out, right? So this is kind of like a, uh, the next slide. This is like the, the most tame R21 picture I could find of animal sacrifice. But that's what animal sacrifice is about, right? It's, it's, there's lots of blood. There's lots of fat. Uh, there's lots of, uh, of uh, I guess, drenching of blood. And that's what God says is going to happen to Edom and Bozra. Right? He will sacrifice them for their sins. He will kill them because of what they've done with their armies to kill and attack God's people. But that's not the only image that's given. The second image is given in verse 9 to 10. Right? Edom's streams will be turned into pitch her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day, its smoke will rise forever. So here we see a picture of like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see a picture of fire and flame and and smoke that rises forever. So God says he's going to judge Edom and Bozrah like it's going to be a sacrifice, but it's also going to be like a place, like in a sense like hell, isn't it? It's going to be like fire and blazing sulfur and a fire that never goes out. But then the last picture is of desolation. Right? So from verse 10 to verse uh, 17, he, he speaks about how it's a place where there are no human beings and there are only wild animals. Right? Only wild animals. It reminds me of like, you know, when you watch those uh, zombie movies, if you're so inclined, where, you know, the human population is all gone and the city is just empty. Or if you don't watch such violent movies, if you, if you watch like Lord of the Rings, right, or The Hobbit, you remember there's that, the, the desolation uh, of the castle, right, the desolation of smoke, where it's like there's no one living in the city or the castle because the dragon is there. And that's what God is saying, right? The judgment that comes on the nations, characterized by Edom and Bozra, will be one of him sacrificing the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, flame and, and heat and great fire forever, and a place where there's desolation, where no one lives anymore. Now, it's very important for us to read carefully, right? Because uh, someone was telling me about how they were driving home in the car with their family and they were arguing over one of the songs that they sang. Right? And half the car said, the song said mountain and the other half of the car said, uh, the lyric said valley. Right? So you can imagine valley and mountain are quite different. So it's very important that we get the words right here and it's very important that we get the, the, the reason why this is happening correct. So in verse 8 up here, it says God, uh, next slide, God does this 
because he has a day of vengeance and a day of retribution. Now, we don't really like the word vengeance and retribution. But literally, if you look at the the meaning, the meaning of vengeance is you inflict punishment for injury or wrong. Retribution is where someone does something wrong to you and you, you pay them back. So what God is really saying is, God is jealous for His people. God is jealous for His city. And when other people attack it, and when other people do violence to it, He will give vengeance and retribution back to them. So in the ears of the hearer, right, in the ears of God's people, Judah, and in the ears of us who read it today, then the idea is, if you mess with God, right, then God messes with you, right? And if you mess with God's people, then it's actually saying that God will mess with you. So it's actually a, a call for us to trust God because even though today you may see violence, you may see uh, attack, but yet God will judge and pay them back for what these people have done against them. Now I think this is such an important message for us, isn't it? Because all over the world, we may be seeing uh, people who, especially Christians, who are attacked because of their faith, uh, who see violence. It's like, um, the reason why the Bible in here in Isaiah uses so much poetry and imagery is not so much because he's meant to address the mind, but to address the heart. right? If you see God inflicting the image of sacrifice, or the the burning sulfur, or desolation on your enemies, then you are able to then realize that even when bad things happen, then you should be able to, 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 to persevere and keep trusting in God, because you know one day God will judge these people. Now, the end of chapter 34 ends with this picture. So if you look here in the passage, at the end of 34, it really keeps talking in poetic images, about the desolation of Eden, the desolation of Bozra. So here, as we close this scene, it's very important to keep this scene in our mind, right? the desolation of Bozra. Because in chapter 35, then there's a complete 180 opposite picture. right? So you have this in- image at the end of chapter 34. Then 35 goes on and says, The desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and then shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. So here, we see the opposite picture. Okay, So one picture is of Bozrah and its desolation. In chapter 35, you see the city of Zion. God city. And it's an image where the desert itself and the wilderness blossoms, right? This is the crocus. This is apparently the crocus. So you can you can see it's very vibrant, right? This plant. And I think God has chosen this image to show us how there's such a great contrast between the city which is under judgment from God and the city which is saved by God. 
in the poetic imagery, you actually see that the land celebrates and rejoices. Now, how does that happen, right? You can't go to the garden and you see your flowers jump, jumping around and you know, your, your, your green grass clapping their hands or something. But it's a poetic image to say that with the coming of God, right, even the land itself rejoices and it shows its rejoicing by its fertility and its brightness and its splendor. So in verse 6 to 7, it talks about how uh, the burning sand will become like a pool, the thirsty ground, a bubbling spring, and the horns where jackal, jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. So it's a picture here of this green grass, gentle streams, flowers, joy and delight. And in verse 5 and 6, there's also an image of how uh, those who are blind and deaf and mute, they will be able to see and hear and speak once again. So here in a sense, uh, there's a tale of two cities, right? So, uh, you know, there's a very famous book by Charles Dickens called the, the Tale of Two Cities. Well, here's the Tale of Two Cities by Isaiah, okay? So that there's a contrast between the two cities, the city of Bozra, which is judged by God. And the image is one of sacrifice, uh, burning desolation. And chapter 35 is the picture of the other city, the city of Zion, God's city of flowers, green grass, clear streams and healing. And the reason why God gives these two images to God's people is to give them a view of the future, of the destiny. And really, what he wants them to see is, this is what's going to happen to God's enemies who attack you. And this is where you will be, because you are God's people. So God gives a few applications in chapter 35. Chapter 35, he says in verse 3, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your Lord will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now, you can understand how your knees shake when you're scared. right? Your hands are weak. Uh, your, your heart is fluttering. So God says, you know, strengthen your hands, right? Strengthen and steady the knees. Be strong and do not fear. Why? Because God will come. Again, that word, right? Vengeance, divine retribution, and he will come to save you. See, God is a God who will bring vengeance and retribution. Uh, If people do violence to God's people, then God will reward them and give them retribution with judgment and violence like Bozra. So I remember how I've been told at different times about our brothers and sisters in Vietnam, how sometimes in the, in the villages away from the major cities, the police actually come and prevent them from meeting for church on a Sunday. Uh, even in some of the bigger cities, when they go to have their retreats or go to even to the beach for a meeting, the, the police will come and ask for their IC. I imagine if I was in a situation, I'll be quite 
scared. I think of our Christian brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. Uh, I remember many years ago, uh, the, one of the Christian leaders from there, Ajay Fernando, he, he's a Sri Lankan, he came to Singapore before. I mean, would you still go to church knowing that someone might put a bomb in the church? I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'll be very scared. Right? Would you bring your kids to church? And I imagined well, how God's people felt in Judah right? all those 2,700 years ago where you know, God's enemies were massing, wanting to annihilate them. For God says, even in the face of uh, this violence, do not fear, right? be strong, right? keep going on in your faith. Uh, because God is a God who will defend His people. God is a God who will bring vengeance and retribution for those who attack his people. But in verse 8, it's not enough just to have a strong faith and to be strong and not fear. Because in verse 8 it says, and a highway, okay, this is where you have to use your imagination. Okay, So you imagine, you close your eyes, start using your imagination. But don't close your eyes now because you've got to look at the Bible. A highway will be there. It will be called a, the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk that way. The unclean will not journey on it. The wicked fools will not go about on it. So imagine there's this highway, okay? And, and this highway you can't find on Google Maps or Waze, but is the, the way of holiness. So the Bible often uses walking as a metaphor for living, right? So in, your, in, in this walking path, this way of holiness, God's people are to live and walk and to, to, to live their, the whole of their lives in holiness. And the contrast is with the unclean. Right? So they are the clean. They are to live their lives in a clean, holy way. Now, I don't think what's in view here is ceremonial cleanliness. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, which is up here on the slide, uh, real cleanness comes from the heart, right? So, you know, it says, out of the heart, in verse 19, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. This is what makes a man unclean. So, what's in view here in Isaiah, I think, is the way of holiness that God wants His people to live is to live holy lives before Him. It's not good enough just to have strong faith and not to fear, but to actually live a life of Cleanness as opposed to being wicked and unclean. And I think that's very important because today, unfortunately, I can name you people that I know who have or claim to have strong faith but don't walk in the way of holiness. Right? So are you on the way of holiness? Because if you think about the image, right? If you're, if you're not on the way of holiness, then you don't un- end up in Zion, right? You, you may end up somewhere else. This is your way, right? And, and, and your way ends up somewhere else. But this is the way of holiness. And the, the destination finally is Zion. So God says, you need, and God's people in Judah needed, not just to be strong in their faith, but to keep walking in the way of holiness. So are you walking on the way of holiness? Because, you know, if your way is somewhere else, not on the way of holiness. Your destination is a different destination. You're not going to end up in the heavenly Zion. Now verse 9 and 10 are the shocker. 
Because verse 9 and 10 continues the image. It says, No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord who has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now here is where, in many ways, Christianity goes against the traffic. Right? So the traffic of all other religions is going this way, and it's almost as if Christianity made a U-turn and is going illegally against the traffic. Because all other religions will tell you, be strong in your faith. Walk on the way of holiness. Right? You can find that every religion in the world, right? Every religion in the world will say, be strong in your faith. Walk on the way of holiness. But only here in the Bible does it say that it's only the redeemed and the rescued who will enter into this Zion with everlasting joy. The language of redemption is where you're a slave and someone pays something of value to set you free. Right? That's the, when, when the olden people heard of redemption, that's what they think of. Uh, even today, we think of redemption, but I don't think anybody here would think of it. It's like, you know, you go to the pawn shop, right? And you pawn your wedding ring or your watch or something valuable. If you want to free your redeemed wedding ring or to redeem your wedding, you've got to pay money, right, to set it free. So that's the same picture. And what God says is, okay, you be strong in your faith, you, you live in the way of holiness, but only those who are redeemed and rescued out of some sort of bondage can go in. Now we know, living this side of the cross, that what God is speaking about is to be redeemed and rescued from God's judgment, right? from sin itself. It's very interesting because in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says that His coming ushers in the time of Isaiah chapter 34 and 35. Right? Jesus was doing his ministry. John the Baptist was in prison and John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus asking Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back to report to John, John the Baptist, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So Jesus in his own words is saying that his coming inaugurates the time of Isaiah chapter 34 and 35. And in Revelation chapter 5, it says that Jesus is the one whose blood has redeemed or purchased men out of their bondage. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So we see that actually Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 has already started. It started when Jesus came into this world. And Jesus has already continued the fulfillment of that prophecy because in his death on the cross, he has redeemed and purchased men out of their judgment so that they can enter into the heavenly Zion. 
So all that we need to wait for really is for Jesus to return once again where the final judgment will come on all the nations and the armies and all the Edoms and all the Bosras of this world. So if you know that this time has already started, right? Uh, the coming of Jesus has already inaugurated chapter 34 and 35. Then the lesson for us really is what was applied for us in chapter 35 where it says, Be strong, do not fear. Walk along the way of holiness and continue to have faith in Jesus to redeem us. So today we've seen in chapter 34 and 35 a tale of two cities. The city of Bozra, the city of Edom, which is subject to God's vengeance and retribution, where there's sacrifice, there's desolation, there's burning for everlasting. And there's a place of Zion, the eternal heavenly city, where there's, there's nature rejoicing, there is green grass, there is no illness, and there is no sorrow or pain, but there's only everlasting joy. So the question for us is, what do we need to keep doing, right? If we know that our destiny is one of these two places. We need to keep being strong in our faith. We need to keep walking the way of holiness. We need to keep having faith in Jesus who redeems us. So last week I watched this movie on Netflix, which I thought was really good. Uh, It was called uh, Roman Israel Esquire. Actually, nothing happens in the movie. It's all just talking, really. But... But it's quite interesting because I kind of like talking movies. So in one of the conversations that he has, he says to, on the next slide, he says to um, these people, right? He says, I'm tired of doing the impossible for the ungrateful. And I thought, wow, that's so, so, that's so deep and profound, right? But in a sense, that's what Jesus has done, right? He's done the impossible. He's redeemed and purchased and rescued men and women, from judgment, God's wrath, from our sin. But we are not the ungrateful, right? We are the grateful. Uh, We are those who know our destiny is that heavenly Zion. God has given us a picture of the reality of the future. So let's keep strong in our faith. Let's keep walking the way of holiness. And let's keep relying on Jesus Because we know that through his death on the cross, he has redeemed us and purchased us so that we will enter into this heavenly Zion for eternity. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we really want to thank you for your word. Dear Father, we live in a time of great uncertainty. Uh, We ourselves may be subject to violence or persecution or difficulty for being Christian. Uh, We see nations and armies around the world who continue to uh, want to annihilate and destroy one another. But dear Father, help us to see that you are God who truly will bring judgment on the nations and their armies. Help us to see that you will bring judgment on violent men and women. That uh, those who indeed uh, seek to destroy you, your church, your people, who rebel against you, uh, they will be like Edom, they will be like Bosra. Uh, Indeed, the images are so stark and powerful that at the very last day, uh, 
the mountains will be soaked with blood, that there will be burning fire of hell, there will be desolation and there will be sacrifice. Dear Father, may this help encourage us to keep going on even if we experience injustice, uh, persecution or violence. Uh, let us to let us be strong in our faith, dear Father. Strengthen our hands, steady our knees. And dear Father, as you've shown us, our destiny truly is the heavenly Zion. So help us truly, Father, to give thanks for Jesus, to be grateful for Jesus, that He is the one who's redeemed and purchased us from our sin and judgment. And help us to continue to walk on the way of holiness. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.